0: Ames, Delhi is not just a prominent landmark, it's a premier tertiary care hospital that caters to thousands of patients every day. It's an elite institute where patients come from all over India for affordable, good quality medical care. Getting selected in Ames competitive exam is a matter of great pride and status in India considering its rich legacy of medical education and care. Medical anthropologist Dr. Anna Rudok in her latest book Special Treatment Student Doctors at the All India Institute of Medical Sciences goes behind this sheen and elite aura and uncovers some troubling aspects of medical education at AIMS. Her book, A Rare Anthropological Study of a Medical Institute in India, asks relevant questions about AIMS competitive exam, its ranking system, and highlights the bias against students who have been selected through caste-based quota. It's a refreshing and yet troubling look at India's most famous hospital-cum-medical college. Let's hear more from Dr. Rudok. Dr. Rudok, welcome and thank you for speaking with News9.
1: Okay, yes, so my my approach to aims in the book is is twofold. I look at it Primarily, I look at it as a very specific and quite unique institution in and of itself that I believe is deserving of greater study and scrutiny by social scientists than it has, you know, had before. Um, That said, I'm also interested in medical education more broadly. And what's so interesting for me about Ames is that we can have that conversation about general medical education, particularly MBBS education at Ames, but we can also approach it by looking at the influence and the power that Ames has to influence other institutions and the way in which they provide medical education. And that's not to say that it does influence everywhere, but it does have a stature and a status and a power. And so, what Ames does in terms of medical education could be influential, and others could learn from that. So when I say that medical education, as you put it, can be leveraged to address health inequalities, I would say yes, but that's not to say that I maintain that that sole responsibility lies with AIMS, if you see what I mean. But because of the complexity of the AIMS mandate, Ames was mandated at its founding to do many different things at once. Um, it was you know, intended to be this specialist institution at the same time as training MBBS students. Um, it was designed to be on a par with global science. It was also intended very much to train doctors to serve India and to go beyond Delhi and work in different parts of the country. Um, and there is an enduring tension between all those different demands of, of AIMS, essentially. Um, so my when it comes to thinking about what medical education can do vis-a-vis inequality, I look at it through, I approach it in different ways. Um, so one of the ways that I look at it is to say what would happen. So the MBBS curriculum AIMS is very very limited, I think we can say, and it's very much focused on medicine as a technical endeavour. Yes, you have a community medicine module, um, you know, the faculty there do, do their best, It's but it's not a particularly popular module and it doesn't have a lot of prestige attached to it for a variety of reasons. Um, but beyond that, social science and the humanities are really Absent. That's not to say some students don't read and learn in their own time, but in terms of it being a structured part of the curriculum, it's not there. And what's very interesting about that is that actually, in the original act that founded the All India Institute, there is an article in that act that provides for the integration of humanities into the curriculum. So there is a press, it never happened but it shows that it was part of a conversation early on and there is a precedent. And what I'm interested in is not so much arguing that doctors should be trained to remedy social inequality because there are various various reasons why that is ambitious and not necessarily appropriate. That said, by integrating social sciences and humanities, I do believe that we can open more of a space for reflection and critical inquiry into what it means to be a doctor, what is the role of the doctor in society? um, And what does it mean to be trained at an institute that has a reputation for being the best that is considered elite, and yet serves some of the poorest people, the most marginalised people who are in need of care that they can't access elsewhere. So that's an interesting dynamic. And I think all of these different angles open up space for a conversation about the potential of medical education that is not currently being fulfilled. In your book, you have uh, mentioned
0: that how social sciences are missing from medical education in India. Also, students who are applying, uh, uh, students who are sitting for medical college exams, uh, they are not tested on their knowledge, they're tested only on science subjects. My question to you is that is a similar practice followed in other countries also, especially in UK uh, from where you belong? Sure,
1: yeah, it's a it's a good question. And I can't speak for every context in the world, obviously. Um, in the UK, yes, social science and humanities are components of medical, undergraduate medical education. They are still inadequate as far as many of us are concerned. And we see some, of the sim- some similar dynamics for sure, in terms of you know, the lack of space for critical inquiry, for reflection into inequality, and then how that plays out downstream when it comes to medical practice. Um, the question of the entrance exam, it is different elsewhere. I am sure there are countries that also have this very, very narrow selection criteria. Um, and it's a challenging area because the Aims exam did used to have a bit more space for a narrative uh, component. So, and there is a very valid argument that the numbers are such that logistically it's impossible to make this exam more um, more comprehensive. And particularly when it comes to saying, you know, how do you put an interview component into an exam that hundreds of thousands of people are taking. Um, There's a logistical argument there and there's also a more of a kind of philosophical, ethical argument around subjectivity, who grades that actually by allowing more of a narrative component, are you potentially skewing things even more in favor of upper caste and privileged students? Because you can be coached, we know, to do well at anything. And so what that would just, it would just spawn a new industry, right? There'd be a new stream of coaching, which would be how to give an interview. That said, um, I don't think personally that recognizing the challenges of a, you know, we have these things, these wicked problems that are these very complex problems with all their tentacles. If we just approached them and said, this is too challenging, let's never think about it, then we wouldn't get anywhere. So the fact that it is difficult, I don't think, means that we should give up on it. Um, It also, I think, opens a conversation about, okay, if the exam is going to be that limited, then are there things you can do with the curriculum? Once people are in, then would having this more comprehensive curriculum that gives space for people to really reflect on why they are there and what they are doing, would that be one way to at least have that conversation? Um, the second point is you're absolutely right that a lot of these things happen. A lot of what I write about is reflective of biomedical training as an institution. And that has commonalities across the world. Absolutely, for sure. Um, it is an institution and and in- I would say in every context, medicine is patriarchal, medicine can be oppressive, medicine can exacerbate inequality. And, you know, the, the COVID pandemic is, has illuminated that everywhere. That said, I think the fact that we see similarities elsewhere shouldn't stop us from looking in detail at what we do see in front of us. So I would maintain that it's valid to scrutinise, you know, Indian institutions while acknowledging that there are things you know some of the challenges are shared by institutions elsewhere but that doesn't mean that institutions in one particular place should be overlooked because there's always something to to say.
0: Based on your interactions with AIMS students what do you think motivates them to apply to AIMS? Also could you share your insights on AIMS ranking system And tell us about the tiebreaker formulas used in arriving at these ranks, the way you have mentioned in the book.
1: Sure. Okay. So, the first question about what motivates students to apply is (laughs) why did they apply? A variety of reasons, actually. Um, And some of them, I would say, among the students I spoke to, I heard a bit of everything and i think we we have a kind of perhaps the the response we expect in the indian context and particularly among middle class students you know is still that your two most prestigious tracks are science so you go engineering or you go medicine and and that still holds for a lot of for a lot of families um and perhaps engineering has kind of become something new because now there's this there's this more conceptual engineering and of course now we have finance and we have entrepreneurship and MBAs and there are new routes Um, what was interesting is is that in some cases the there was a challenge to the idea that families would necessarily be happy for a student to pursue medicine So there are a few examples in the book of students who really wanted to pursue it against their family's wishes um, because parents thought it was going to be too difficult or it was going to take too long to train Um, and people I think who had perhaps witnessed other people going into medicine you know medicine isn't isn't a guaranteed um, path to fame and fortune I, that's how it it differs in in many ways and and it depends where you train and it depends the path that you take and where you want to practice um of course aims getting into aims comes with a more or less a guarantee that if you choose that path you will do well because you have this this badge of, of prestige um but yeah so there were some students who did pursue medicine because their families or their teachers had said, you know, you're doing well in sciences, you should do this. Um, there was one student who was a wonderful example of pursuing, you know, prestige above all else. He'd started at IIT and then didn't like it. So dropped out and managed to sum then got into Ames. So that was just an idea of the equivalence for some people still of, you know, let me just go to the best place for whichever subject it is. Um, There were some who were studying medicine because they thought it was, some felt that engineering was becoming too saturated and that medicine had more prospects. Um, Some did see it as a, particularly those who came from medical families um, who were, you know, at the upper end of the middle class spectrum, I would say, and in some cases, probably upper class would be a better description, um, who did see it as a, as, a, as a no-brainer, really. They'd never really questioned what they were going to do. It was just a given that they would pursue medicine and they could see the security in that. And then there was there were a few students who were in it because they wanted to alleviate suffering, as they put it. Um, and they want to to make a difference. So so there are a variety of a variety of responses to that. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things I would love to do in the future is to follow up because of course these motivations change as you go through your training and through your career. Um, and, and I do think that we forget sometimes with these elite institutions just how young the students are you know, when they're taking the exam, when they're doing their coaching, when they start their their degree, they're very young. um, And they haven't been exposed to a huge amount, because so many of them have been so focused on coaching and practicing to get in, that the world has kind of shrunk to this ambition. And that doesn't leave a lot of room or space for thinking about why you are pursuing a certain path. Um, And then, of course, one of the big things about an institution like Ames is that once you have made this spectacular achievement of getting in then then a pressure comes with that and an expectation comes with that that you will continue to achieve in a similarly kind of socially sanctioned way which is one of the reasons why for students who were interested in things other than super specialized practice in an urban area that turned out to be very challenging for them because there's very little support or encouragement of that kind of path um, Rank and the entrance exam, really fascinating. So I, this is one of the ways in which I approached affirmative action and the arguments around merit, um, as well as being personally interested in, I in the book I use this concept, I came up with this concept of a biographical number, because, you know, I have lots of Indian friends, I I know a lot of, I, I knew this concept of rank. I wasn't. I didn't go to school in the UK at a time. I also didn't go to private school, but rank was not a feature of my education. And of course, for all of my Indian friends, it's been there for as long as they can remember. Um, so it's not as though you know you arrive at Ames and this is a new thing. What what I find interesting is one what this this concept of a biographical number is saying. Okay, what does this number do to someone's Self perception to their subjectivity. What does it really mean to be ranked fifth or tenth or twentieth or five thousand in terms of how you perceive yourself and also how you perceive your prospects for the future? How does that influence what you feel that you you are able to do and what is a realistic aspiration for you given your rank? So there's that, and then there's also the way in which rank becomes a weapon in the merit argument whereby at an institute like Ames that has so many thousands of people taking the exam and you were saying about the tiebreakers, when you actually look at the results for the MBBS entrance exam they are virtually they're calculated to seven decimal places and they are virtually identical for a long 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 time as you go down that list. And so in some cases, they use mathematical formula to force a differentiation where it doesn't exist. Um, and I argue and I build on the work of Satish Deshpande, sociologist, about this, about the way in which that rank is used as a tool to, as he puts it, create heterogeneity where there is homogeneity. So rank creates an impression of difference where actually there is sameness for a long way down Um, way after you know all the seats at Ames are filled you have to go through hundreds of of ranks and then, then rank gets converted into everyone knows at which point the cutoff is for a particular category and if you were in that general category and your rank corresponds to that we see how that becomes a narrative weapon and certain ranks are deemed as corresponding to be meritorious or really deserving of your place at Ames when in fact what we see is that very many people get very very similar scores and there isn't a lot of difference but when you're in a reserved category you get labeled of course in a way that when you're in the general category you don't so this caste or community identity gets ascribed to people at a certain rank, um, with exceptions, but on the whole, whereas in the general category, you don't see upper caste written next to someone's name in the, in the exam results. So they're, they're some of the, and obviously it's a huge conversation, but they're, they're the, some of the aspects of rank that I found particularly interesting.
0: You have also discussed in detail the very controversial and sensitive issue of affirmative action in India's medical education. Most students you spoke to said that caste-based discrimination was not overt at AIMS. But what were your observations? What was the subtext here?
1: What I found interesting was when that narrative um, or that assertion of there not being discrimination was, appeared to be undermined by other statements or uh, examples when it seemed that actually caste does matter. And of course, caste matters. I mean, of course it does. Um, I, I can't comment on the, the veracity of those comparative statements, but they were made a lot. Um, And I think, you know, we can broadly assume that, yes, there are more overtly violent examples of caste discrimination, perhaps at other medical colleges. Um, However, Ames has a very dark history when it comes to caste discrimination, and that is very recent. Um, And the students know that. So there is also that comparison being made that, you know, right now, perhaps there isn't that kind of overt bullying going on in hostels, but recent, you know, relatively recently there was. Um, I didn't spend time doing ethnographic work in the hostels. So I'm really, I'm not in a position to say whether or not, you know, what I know is what I was told. And as an anthropologist, that's the interesting bit it's not so much saying, you know, is this true or false, it's the fact that, okay, this is what this student with an OBC reserved seat said, and this is what a student in the general category said, and what was very apparent, unsurprisingly, is that a lot of students in the general category professed not to have known who was which caste, who was in a reserved category, until certain events like the Students' Union elections, whereas the students in a reserved category would say, of course we knew, because look at the exam results and it's all there. So there is an effort on behalf of some of the students in the general category to profess this castless worldview that you know it doesn't, it doesn't matter to us at the same time as very, very often expressing concerns about affirmative action. Um, and those concerns could be quite pernicious. Um, Particularly, and we go back to rank and merit and how that gets weaponized and how that gets invested with a moral content um you know one student said to me how his concern was that students who had were there by virtue of affirmative action were not sufficiently competent and therefore were putting patients lives at risk and we get into that very dangerous narrative. Um, So they are some of the ways in which caste and discrimination manifested through conversation. Um, And the other thing I would say on that is that, in my time at least, and I believe this may still be the case, although I'm not entirely sure, there were more examples of overt discrimination among faculty um, and hiring practices, et cetera, um, than there were among students, at least as was discussed with, with me. Although, sorry, sorry, Shobhita, can I just add on this? Although we also have to acknowledge, of course, that the periodic, deeply tragic suicides of students in the hostels at Ames are, if not exclusively, very, very often students in who are in a reserved category um, and that's not a coincidence we know that. Um, in chapter 5
0: of your book uh, you have written about this very interesting concept of patient labor. Uh, could you please elaborate this for our listeners?
1: Yeah sure. So patient labor I used as a phrase to describe, essentially the exchange between patients and students. So patients providing their bodies as educational material, essentially. Um, And it's interesting at Ames. So as we all know, Ames is overwhelmed by demand at any given moment. And the narrative that students had about patients was twofold. On the one hand, there was this narrative of, they are too many, it's overcrowded, and the number of patients compromises the ability to provide um, respectful care, I would say. You know, the reason that sometimes patients aren't treated as well as they should be is because we are under too much pressure. So There's that narrative. And then there is also a narrative that patients are an educational asset um, and this is what I began to understand as, as patient labour and there's a concept in medical anthropology about bioavailability and that's about this exchange of um, the way in which people make their, their bodies available often to the state um, whether through organ transfer or blood donation and what the, the political content of that, of that action may be and at AIMS what I find or found really interesting about this is, is the fact that the, the value of the MBBS is, is produced at least in part by patients who do not have access to the type of healthcare environment in which an Amesonian is ultimately expected to practise. So there is this kind of disjuncture where students recognize the value of the numbers and the clinical diversity, and they know that a lot of those patients are at AIMS for want of accessible, affordable, competent primary or secondary care elsewhere. Um, And yet students are encouraged to aspire to a very high technological, super specialized, predominantly urban, and ultimately by default, private practice. So that's the the dynamic there that that I found interesting.
0: You have quoted a former director of AIMS saying, AIMS killed the GP. Why do you think AIMS has pushed for specialization
1: and super specialization in medical education? Yes, this goes to the heart of that point about the complexity of the AIMS mandate. And actually, if you look at all the different things AIMS was expected to do, it's very unlikely it would ever have been able to fulfil all of those. Um, And this is another example, you know, this wonderful quote, AIMS killed the GP it's to me what it really illustrates is this point about the power of influence that Ames has as an institution so of course it's not a literal you know Ames single-handedly obliterated the idea of the GP but because when Ames was established it was not supported by primary secondary healthcare infrastructure this phenomenon that we still see or well, we see an ever greater to ever greater magnitude of patients coming for that type of care, that began almost immediately. And so as therefore, did this you know patient labor concept, which happens everywhere, students learn through patients, of course. But this particular phenomenon where patients were coming for a particular type of care or for want of a particular type of care, but students would not be encouraged to pursue that as a career or as a legitimate career path. That is partly why this person said, you know, Ames killed the GP, because the need was so clear. And yet that wasn't met. And of course, patients were treated and given the care they needed. But the education that students were receiving didn't, necessarily reflect that need by encouraging um training in general practice and certainly not by validating it as a medical path that is as valid as becoming you know a radiologist or an anesthesiologist or whatever speciality uh, a student chooses to pursue so i do think that's that's as much about um The reputation and the influence of the of the institution um, as it is about the actual practice. And this brings me to my
0: last question. Dr Rudok, why did you decide to write an anthropological study of AIMS? And knowing the premier elite status of AIMS in India, was it easy for you to do your research?
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, so, in terms of the motivation for the work, I so at the time I was actually working as a as an analyst um, at the UK Foreign and what was the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and I was working as an India analyst, and I wasn't particularly um, enamoured of the priorities, shall we say. Um, And I knew that I wanted to do a PhD at some point, and I loved anthropology. And so I decided to go back to university and do my PhD in medical anthropology. I knew I wanted to focus on India. I knew I wanted to focus very broadly on health inequalities. I have always been and continue to be, because it still hasn't been answered, fascinated by this question of why public health care has never been, never became a political priority. Um, and why India, why India has struggled with that? We know the colonial story and the legacy of that, but I'm also really interested in why, kind of contemporary politics from '47 onwards, why public healthcare never really became, never really found its place on the on the political agenda. Um, and I was also a, a little bit contrary in that. You know medical anthropology in India tends to be I think this has probably changed a bit but at least when I was studying it tended to be based around community studies Um, so you're more kind of traditional anthropology where you'd work in a community and look at treatment seeking or illness experience and there's some really excellent and you know now by now quite legendary work that, that comes out of that but I wanted to do something a bit different. And I was interested in power and how medical power is formed. Um, and I was having conversations with people and Ames kept coming up. Um, and there is a, there's a great quote from a, a French anthropologist called Didier Fassan, who wrote a piece about public ethnography, public anthropology. And he writes about the role of ethnography being to the way in which it can simultaneously interrogate the obvious and illuminate the unknown and that was the appeal of aims for me because it's both things it is so present in public imagination um, and there are so many assumptions attached to it that in some ways it is obvious, everyone has something to say about Ames, especially around Delhi, like everybody has something to say. Everybody knows where it is, it's on all the road signs. But at the same time, it's very, very understudied. And so in some ways, it's actually quite unknown. So that was, that was the appeal, this combination of this institutional power, um, and also wanting to do something that no one had done before. And in terms of getting access, yes, it was a challenge. There's a a good reason why there's not a lot of these studies around. (laughs) Um, One of the the many advantages I think of doing this kind of project as a PhD student is that you do have the luxury of time that you may never have again to do this kind of work. So I did have the time to persevere. Um, And yes, it was challenging. There was some resistance inevitably, but there were also people who were very open to, you know, what I was curious about. Um, and also, yes, it was challenging, but it's also a very good example of how elite networks, you know, function function globally so I was at the India Institute at King's College London it's not you know and I had a connection to the Ministry of Health and Family Welfare and so you know those those networks are in place so I would never pretend that it was it was just me on my own and it was certainly easier for me I would say to to gain access you know um, coming from a British university with these connections than it may be, you know, even for an Indian researcher without that kind of institutional and elite backing. So it's important. I recognize, I acknowledge my persistence, but I also very much acknowledge the, the support I had to, to get in the door.
0: I'm glad you had
2: all these resources with you and you used them to do the study. And it's a fantastic book. And it's fantastic not only because of what you have written inside, but also because uh, this topic is so rare and you can raise questions that hardly anybody else in India has really raised at least in my opinion. It's you're not even as journalists, you know, there are we never question uh, an institution like AIDS. We do question, but not it's not common and it's not openly encouraged because it's AIDS. As you say, 10,000 people are treated for every year, which is insane. And still so less compared to the number of sick people we have in that country. So even whatever Little Ains is doing is fantastic. and technology. But yeah, you have gone beyond that and asked very important questions, uh, which are very relevant to our times. And um, the way medical, medical education is, and the way medical education is, impacts everyone in some way Thank you so much. Uh, it was uh, a lovely reading your book and a related reading it. And talking
1: to you was just as much fun. Thank you so much for taking time out it and talking to me. Thanks so much, Ota. It was it was really lovely to chat and, and thanks for your interest in the book and for the invitation. I appreciate it.